This is R.J. Rushdooney, Easy Chair Number 347, September 24, 1995. This evening, or afternoon rather, Mark Rushdooney and I will be interviewing Dr. Ellsworth McIntyre of Naples, Florida. Andrew uh, Sandlin is under the weather, and Douglas Murray is out of town. Now to introduce Dr. McIntyre, he is an educator, an ordained minister with a very successful background in business who has developed a system of education whereby he has accomplished some remarkable things. I'll have him tell more about it in a moment, but he has pioneered in educating two to five-year-old children so that after he has had them for those years, they are ready for the fourth grade. He now covers grades four through six in the six schools he has, has made them a tremendous financial success so that from the standpoint of accomplishing a great deal as a Christian, he is an unqualified success. Educationally, a remarkable success. And then economically, a remarkable success. We have a mandate as Christians to conquer all things for Christ, to occupy until he comes. Unfortunately, too many Christians have been losers, or let us say too many church people have been losers. So it is refreshing to see someone like Matt, who is an unqualified success in every area of endeavor. Uh, so I'm going to ask Dr. Ellsworth McIntyre now to <coughs> tell us what he is doing, how he got there, what he hopes to do, and so on. And don't hesitate to take as long as you want to make your statement. Thank you, Rash. It's a pleasure to uh, be with the Easy Chair again. Uh, since I was with you last, uh, I guess it was earlier this spring, uh, Reverend Andrew Sandlin and myself have uh, set about setting up a Christian Reconstructionist uh, conference that will take place December 2nd in Naples. And it's the plan of my family, of Pat and I, uh, to give uh, free of charge uh, all the help that is necessary to any friend of Christian Reconstruction uh, help in starting schools like ours. Now we've developed a model uh, that can be used to start a Christian school from scratch. We've successfully replicated this thing five times. We have six schools underway right now and property uh, to start more. Uh, so we have a working model that can be used by uh, Christian men and women that are interested in uh, going into the ministry uh, and getting into a work where they don't have to compromise their doctrine. Uh, too often men that believe a firm Calvinist position, an uncompromising position like Christian Reconstructionism, find themselves affiliated with denominations and churches where they have to uh, rein in what they have to say. They have to be very careful about what they do or they'll, they'll lose their paychecks and lose their, their living. But if these people could start a work from scratch and do it uh, on a good financial basis, then they could be free uh, to teach the doctrine and to build a work from scratch and, and have a congregation of people that would support them. Also, the society in general, we can convert them if we can get them young enough and get there first with the doctrine taught correctly. Uh, the humanists from every side uh, press in upon our young people, uh, teaching them all of the... Uh, humanistic ideas and then we have to come along later on and try to undo this. Uh, it makes good sense from an educator standpoint to go into 
uh, these hearts and minds of these young people through Christian preschools and teach them the truth from the very beginning. God's law, God's application of law, and all of the things that are necessary to make a success out of, out of their lives. And this can be done through a Christian preschool at a profit, as you've already mentioned, and the parents of these young people uh, can be brought into churches and we can develop works that are independent. And we're going to give this technology away to uh, people that would take advantage of it, and that's going to be the subject of the conference that will take place December 2nd in Naples, Florida, and we hope for a good turnout. Mac, one of the things that I think is uh, particularly wonderful is the involvement of your family in the work. Could you tell us more how many of the eight children are involved and what they are doing? We have uh, eight children, three sons and five daughters, and uh, at one time or another all of them have been involved in the ministry and their, and their wives, those that are working. And uh, we have six grandchildren coming up and some of the older ones are already beginning to talk about schools of their own whenever they uh, come of age. This is one of the uh, great advantages of a family enterprise of any kind. Uh, people have idealized the family form. For example, Thomas Jefferson uh, talked about the, uh, the independent gentleman having his own uh, means of making a living. How a free man, if he's able to provide his own sustenance, uh, doesn't have to uh, trim in what he believes uh, as he would if you were getting a paycheck. You can't offend the boss too often, too long, uh, you'll end up out of work. Uh, but a family enterprise does give a lot of freedom to uh, embrace religious beliefs and political beliefs that may not be uh, mainstream and popular for the moment. Uh, this family enterprise that we have allows that to be done. It also does the main thing in education which needs to be done, which is more important than literacy, and that is that children have a, a meaningful employment to do so that they develop character. And this was the big thing with the family form. Uh, they had chores day in and day out that they had to do systematically. Uh, they had to uh, assume responsibility and carry this out. And this develops character in a way uh, that no, nothing else can. The child, whenever he comes to the dinner table at night, knows that he's contributed to the family enterprise, uh, that in effect he's earned that food uh, that's at the table. He's contributed to the family welfare. And the same thing takes place in, in our schools. Uh, our youngest daughter, Abigail, uh, was just a third grader when she was already uh, doing meaningful things around the school whenever we first started in 1985. And today she's the, uh, the most experienced and most capable accountant that we have for the six schools uh, because she has years and years of experience uh, because accounting seems to be her particular gift uh, in that school. And she's an invaluable employee uh, to us. And uh, one of these days, whenever she finds a young man, she's just 19 right now, well, I'm sure that uh, she'll uh, have her own school and perhaps several of them. And the same thing is true of the other children, because in a family enterprise of this kind, if the child's aptitude is teaching or the child's aptitude is accounting or uh, public relations work or whatever it happens to be, well, there's a spot for them. But the character that they develop in doing this is very important. Children are very much like adults. Uh, play, recreation is not uh, a full-time employment for us. We have to have meaningful work in order to have our lives be truly happy. And if you give meaningful work to children, uh, this quickly becomes more enjoyable to them than just mere uh, feckless play. Uh, play and recreation is just something we do after we work very hard and, and we earn a, a respite from it. But it's certainly not a full-time calling. Uh, part of the uh, liberal philosophy of our day is that children uh, should play and do nothing else. Uh, and quite the opposite is true. Children, if they have meaningful work to do, if they have a meaningful contribution to the family, they're far, far happier and more secure uh, than children that uh, just watch television or, or just go around breaking things all day uh, to get attention from, uh, from their parents who are bored stiff with them. Uh, so the family enterprise aspect is one of the, the best means of uh, producing children that are responsible. I'm glad you brought that up, Mac. One of the things we have seen for almost two generations now is 
a hostility against the family and a hostility against family operated enterprises as though there is something wrong about them I've been interested in this past year in talking to a great many people to hear a repeated refrain which uh, is sad but revelatory of our time, namely that it's becoming harder and harder to hire people to work for you. They share, no matter how well trained they are in a Christian college or in your local church, the feeling of victimhood that is common to our time. They believe that uh, if everything doesn't suit them at their place of work, they are being victimized. And they're very loud and vocal about their complaints about very fine men in their church or in their community. I've heard men say who've uh, small businesses or a small operation, but ones that are quite successful and bring in a very uh, superior income that they have dispensed with secretaries and will only have computers, or they only use their daughters or close relatives in their place of business because they can uh, correct them and even get angry with them justifiably and it doesn't uh, lead to a lawsuit. It leads to them doing the thing properly. We have so self-centered a population today that uh, they refuse to believe that anything they do is anything short of perfect. If somebody corrects them, they become victims immediately. And this is an impossible situation. So more and more businesses are thinking of a purely family operation. In fact, I was told that in some instances where the work grew and uh, they became, uh, they went public, they sold shares. They're buying back the shares now so they can have exclusive control of the corporation. So the family-operated venture, I think, is a very godly one. Yes, what you say is the direct result of a uh, removing from the school system all competition. Yes. Um, competition for grades, competition for recognition, uh, and the teaching of a philosophy that somehow or other competition is an evil thing. Uh, one of the reasons that uh, many successful people still come out of a sports background is that it's very difficult to convince a loser that he's a winner. Yes. Uh, but in grades in the classroom by teachers manipulating things uh, through various devices, uh, can actually uh, convince some students that they're not as bad as they really are. Mm -hmm. And uh, thereby they deaden uh, a striving for achievement. And this creates an artificial view of the world because the world that we're, we live in, uh, as every experienced adult knows, is a world of competition. Uh, you have to be proficient in whatever your calling is and you have to do it better than the other guy in order to, uh, to be successful. And that is what's being success uh, successful, doing things more efficiently and better than other folks can. But these children are continually being taught in the classroom that, uh, that they don't have to be, uh, strive for excellence. Uh, they don't have to strive to, to do things well. And as a consequence, why uh, when they suddenly are thrown into an enterprise where the boss is insisting that things being done correctly, they do feel like a victim because they've just spent uh, 18, 20 some years being taught that, uh, that that sort of thing is not important. Mm -hmm. And so all of a sudden the boss is an unloving character who's only interested in a dollar uh, and not interested in me and boo-hoo. Uh, and whenever we hire students right out of school, very often this is the attitude. Mm 
that somehow or other that, uh, that this is a very bad thing. Now to go back to the family enterprise that we have, if the child is raised uh, from a youth working in a family enterprise, he quickly learns where the money comes from, and the money is from producing a product, a uh, better product at less money than the competition, and this is the very survival of his family depends upon it. So he's learning a system that is real, that is genuine, that the real world operates on instead of this artificial thing that the academics uh, have created. It's no accident that the academics love socialism because uh, they are trying to produce an artificial world in which uh, capitalistic ideas, uh, conquest, uh, winners and losers don't exist. But uh, winners and losers, losers do exist in, in, in every system and uh, those who learn it quickly and learn it well and have the psychological hardness to, uh, to adapt to it are going to be the ones that survive. And this is one of the reasons I would like to see many thousands of Christian families across our country have family enterprises like this, uh, because we then would be the folks who would come out ahead on the competition uh, against these people, because they're very fragile in their, in their thinking, because they really do believe that competition is bad. Now, I'll illustrate that for you. Uh, in the state of Maryland, uh, I had a large uh, Christian school of about 800 and some students, and we started a band program in which I designed a program that the students had to practice their instruments daily. I didn't leave it to be practiced at home because I knew they didn't have the discipline to do that. So I insisted that the music teacher uh, have a special period every day in which those students had to study. Well, in very short order, the band became championship in its uh, caliber. And we asked the public schools if we could come and participate in their uh, music competitions and uh, they agreed to do so. However, their music competitions were called a festival because they didn't like competition. And uh, they didn't like grading one school uh, against another. Our students, on the other, <laughs> on the other hand, uh, were very offensive to them because whenever they got a grade one, uh, meaning they did very well, they would cheer and clap. Uh, and uh, they would, naughty-naughty, uh, the judges would say, this. Uh, this is a festival and this is not supposed to be a competition. Mm -hmm. And our students, of course, were aghast because uh, in the Christian school that I was administrator of, I kept injecting competition in rather than taking it out. Uh, but this is on a small scale is what uh, educators everywhere have done uh, where they can. And one of the reasons they dislike sports so heartily, again, is because you just can't take uh, the competition out of sports and pretend uh, that winning isn't important. It, it is important. It's important in every area of life. That's the way the real world is uh, established. What you said about sports, I want to underscore, and I think what you said is also very, very important. When about 50 years ago I first went to an Indian reservation, I, I guess a little more than 50 years ago, one of the things that uh, interested me was that at the Indian school, the white teachers would teach them a variety of games, sports, and they would be played there at school. And uh, basketball, or rather baseball, and basketball also, appealed to the Indian boys. But what happened was this. If it were a non-school day or a summer vacation, and a group of uh, Indian boys went out to play some baseball, if five or six-year-old toddlers were around, they would run up and ask to be included in the game. And the Indians never refused anybody. They didn't want to hurt anyone's feelings, not that of a child. You never heard a baby cry. They got what they wanted. So the children uh, of five and six would be included in the baseball game, which would quickly end the game, because how can teenagers play with two or three, five or six-year-olds in the game? let alone one. The result is the game would quickly end. They were thoroughly non-competitive. 
they were the ideal of what some educators want in the way of uh, a cooperative uh, people. Now, when you don't have frustration, and these children did not, this leads to a major crisis. You begin to grow up and suddenly find, you find the world is frustrating. You don't get everything you want. Exactly. And, and every time you turn around, you're being frustrated. Mm-hmm. Well, the net result was that a very high percentage of uh, the children, boys and girls, were alcoholics by their mid-teens. And it was a very sad fact. Some of them were highly talented. In terms of IQ, the Indians, I would say, probably rank number one in the country in a test about that time showed that they did but in achievement they're at the bottom by quite a margin they have no sense of competition because this has been schooled out of them the reservation system uh, the collapse of family incentives you have a non-competitive people and alcoholics Yes, the surest way to raise a wild man is just give him anything he wants. Yes. Uh, and then whenever they get too disobedient, well, I just drug them down with Ritalin and uh, and allow them uh, somehow to overcome it that way. And I suppose then one day they would substitute alcohol. Mm-hmm. But of course, sports is one way to make sure the competition stays in in spite of uh, liberal teachers. Music is another uh, because there's instant feedback. If you hit the wrong note, child has there's no excuse the child hit a wrong note the same as the peg to home plate the peg either got the home plate on time or it didn't uh there's instant feedback in sports about whether you did something right or not and you always have your peers who uh, are not going to be as tender on you as uh, some liberal teacher might be and the same thing is true with uh, good musical training so i would advise parents out there that uh, don't have a Christian school to put their child in or some Christian schools i'm afraid are well down the road on this non-competition as well uh, a musical instrument is a good idea uh, because there's a tyranny to that, uh, that that's very good. Uh, I have had educators uh, tell me that uh, musicians and mathematicians, the math ability and music ability run together. And it isn't altogether uh, a gifting sort of thing. It's just that in math, uh, the wrong answer is the wrong answer in spite of what modern math people may say. And the wrong note is still the wrong note. Uh, so if your child is gifted in math or gifted in music or athletics, uh, to get them away from that non-competitive environment would be certainly good parental training. And, of course, if they can get them out of that system entirely uh, with a family uh, daycare school, as, as we have, that would be the, the best of all worlds. Uh, but to indulge a child and to give him anything he wants uh, is not to give him a proper view of the world. Uh, the world's very unforgiving to people who make mistakes, and we, we have to learn to, uh, to take failure and to be hardened by it just as our muscles would be hardened by work. I think the fact that suicide is perhaps the leading cause of death of, uh, of young children nowadays in our society, I, I think if you took the accidental deaths and converted those that were really suicides that looked like accidents, uh, that would be the leading cause of death of our young people. And I think it's because they're so fragile in... Uh, in their background. They just have not been exposed to the toughness that comes uh, from working and learning how to do things correctly and uh, and taking correction and taking it well. Uh, they just can't seem to take correction. This is one of the reasons the family enterprise has become uh, the largest business that many men can handle uh, because we bring young pe- uh, people into our uh, school system uh, as employees and we find a very difficult time training them. Uh, they, they just uh, are overflowing with this idea that somehow or other uh, that it's unloving and uncompassionate. Uh, their argument against uh, the six-year-olds playing with the teenagers is, well, that's not compassionate. Well, the, the thing is, for the sake of the game, if the game's going to be played correctly, if the game's going to be played with any meaning, and if the teenagers are going to make any progress, uh, we're going to have to have some discrimination here against who plays uh, on this particular team and who plays on that. 
to make the team, to make the cut, and all of those things are valuable, valuable lessons to learn. And sometimes the most valuable lesson that's learned is by the student who's cut, rather than by the student who makes the team. Uh, but some people act as though the, if a student doesn't make the team or doesn't make it in some particular area, his life is over. No, he's just discovered that that isn't his area of, of expertise. But the character that he's developed in the meantime, that toughness of being able to take disappointment, that's something that will be with him for the rest of the life, his life and will help him uh, when he gets into that area where he really has uh, the gift and calling to be a success. We see a lot of that carried over into the professions now where you have certain groups saying the, the standards are unfair, the standards are biased against white males, therefore you must change the standards so that we can compete as right, well. Right. And to give us a whole separate set of standards. Yes, I, the, uh, the covenant that we teach, blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience, is very unforgiving. Uh, we must, uh, in, in its toughness to the child, sin. Uh, good things will happen if you do this, bad things will happen if you do that. Uh, this is also softened by this manby-pamby uh, Arminian gospel that we have out there. Somehow or other, it doesn't matter uh, that uh, you can't quite tell the truth and you can't quite work as you should and you can't quite respect your elders. Well, all of those things indeed do matter and they're sins and good things aren't going to happen if you continue to do that. And it all starts in the classroom where the teacher says no one is going to speak without permission, no one is going to get out of their seats without permission. Is that clear? And if the teacher manages to just get that child to follow those two simple rules, they've learned a very valuable lesson that good things happen when you obey the authority and you obey the teacher and bad things happen if you don't. And that follows us all of our lives. There are rules and regulations and certainly God's law which overarches all that we must obey and there isn't any uh, there isn't any alternative. It's a hard fact of reality and it's not a mark of compassion for a teacher to give the student some hope that he can break the rules and still be a success and still have a happy life. He may end up being a suicide. I'd like to pick up on what you said about suicide. The suicide rate in this country is highest among American Indians. They have been, through the reservation system, placed in a non-competitive world, and everything has accentuated that uh, non-competitive uh, uh, aspect of their life. As a result, they grow up, face frustration, and they readily go into alcoholism, and after a while, as readily into suicide. And I think we are doing the same thing in the state schools with all the teaching that is non-competitive. There isn't the satisfaction of winning. There uh, is a frustration uh, in our present situation. Uh, your point is very important, Rush, and I'd like to make an application uh, with that to many of the folks out there that are homeschooling their children. Uh, in our school system, we've had to hire uh, parents uh, who have been homeschooling their children, and we've discovered to our horror that they've used the homeschool situation to take all of the structure out of the child's life. Uh, he doesn't do things uh, on a particular schedule. He doesn't have a, a firm assignments that he must complete on time. Uh, and as a consequence, they've become an exaggerated and horrible version of what we're talking about in a public school environment. And all of a sudden, they're put into our school and they have to uh, line up, just do something as simple as line up to go to the restroom, and that becomes very traumatic to them. Uh, all of a sudden, they have to obey rules, and all of a sudden, they have to have work done at a particular time. And all of a sudden, mother isn't there guiding them at every step of the way. And I would say to the homeschool people out there that, uh, who seem to dream endlessly about getting a better curriculum, uh, that this problem is so easy to correct. It gets some structure into that child's life, some assigned tasks that they must do, even if it's as simple as speaking with permission, getting out of seat without permission, making up your bed, or whatever it is. Uh, hard and fast tasks that they must do uh, in order to get recognition, in order to uh, get love. 
and uh, they get uh, something else if they fail on these tasks. But if we fail in our homeschooling to teach children responsibility, we'll be raising wild men just as sure as the Indians that you, that you describe. And uh, this is a horrifying thing to us that we brought these uh, homeschooling students in and in every case the mother is so certain that the children are so far ahead and then whenever we test them against our students almost always they're, they're, they're deficient deficient compared to uh, children that's in our system. Now, of course, they're ahead of the public school, but that's certainly nothing to measure ourselves by. Uh, we should be years ahead of the public school in testing, and our typical student is at least two years ahead of the public school environment. For example, uh, this month uh, we sent out uh, a photograph of a young girl who's, who just completed first grade with us and has ran off the scale. She's seventh grade uh, six months in, in her abilities. Uh, she answered nearly every question right on the standardized Stanford achievement test was asked her. In other words, if she was given a more difficult test, she could even ran up further. Uh, but she doesn't feel that uh, she's been overworked or anything. She's just been in the system since she was two years old where she was asked to do certain tasks and uh, it was expected of her that she do them correctly. And she's very happy, well-adjusted child, very pleased with what she's doing. And this we must do or we're not doing a favor to our children to take them out of the public school system and remove what little com competitiveness that there is from their lives uh, that still remains there. Very good point. I recall some years ago uh, a parent whose attitude toward the child was, and he loved the child dearly, was that the child needed frustrating. And I believe that's very true because if we are never frustrated, we are never given a proper direction. We are then very easily bored. I never heard a child say when I was young, I'm bored. But since World War II, that's a common comment, I'm bored. And to me, that's amazing. It's a, it indicates a lack of discipline in one's life, an inability to organize and to function unless they get what they want immediately. For example, one of the things I loved greatly when I was a child and still love is fishing. And I cannot recall how many times as a boy, I, when I was about four and five, my cousin and I went to the river to fish. Didn't get a thing. But it was no less exciting to us, and we kept going again and again until we caught something. And that was an exciting day. But now too many young uh, people, children, are taken fishing and after a few minutes they say, I'm bored. This is no fun. I'm not catching anything. And uh, that's typical of the impatience and the lack of discipline in the lives of people today. And that, and I don't believe I'm uh, overstating it, is a pre-suicidal tendency. You won't take frustration. If you throw your uh, line into the water, a fish has to do that, or you're <laughs> bored, or the world is not treating you right. Well, I think parents should nip that in the bud immediately. If a child complains they're bored, something should be done. Like the saying it was common when Dorothy and I were growing up, I'll give you something to cry about <laughs> if you complain. And the whole premise was sound. You are not to be a complainer and a whiner. Yes, uh, the parents instinctively many times understand that something's wrong, but, but they don't know what it is. Uh, but as I initially said, you don't have to have a college degree and a master's degree and, and, and a perfect curriculum. It seems like the homeschool people drive me uh, crazy with all oh, what curriculum are you using and endless questions about the curriculum as though this was the heart of the matter. The heart of the matter is teaching techniques. 
the heart of the matter is developing character. Uh, because let's face it, many of the things that the student learns in the classroom are going to have no real direct application to what that child's going to do later in life. The character, however, will have a great deal to do with it. Character also is directly related, of course, to our, our covenantal theology. Uh, character is what's going to enable us to pass up the adulterous and the fornicating situation. Uh, character is what's going to enable us to defer gratification for greater gratification sometime in the future. Uh, we don't catch any fish today, that's just going to be the greater pleasure later when we, when we make that hit big. Uh, deferred gratification is what that salesman needs. He knows he got so many turndowns now, but, but if he keeps on going and he has the grit to keep going when others stop, why, he's going to be the successful man. Uh, he's going to be able to keep going whenever weaker men stop. Uh, all of these things are not necessarily uh, what the country people would call book learning. Uh, these are things that come from a character that's developed in doing many times repetitive, boring tasks, but doing them better and having character to do, keep at it longer uh, than weaklings who cannot. Mm -hmm. And these are very, I think, is one of the reasons very often that the dropout and the C student becomes a multimillionaire and the A student who uh, things come so easily uh, because maybe they have good recall, but they never develop the character. Uh, necessary to make it in the real world. And then they get out in the real world, uh, all of a sudden they can't understand why the world, uh, people aren't handing them things on a platter, uh, as it was in the academic world. Well, people don't hand you things in the real world. You have to do these boring, repetitive tasks. You have to sell people. You have to persuade people. And you have to build things and do things that are small to begin with in order to have the character to do great things later on. And all of these things are not learned from a curriculum. They're learned from a teacher who understands them. And the understanding of it comes right down to the Ten Commandments and the, uh, the idea that the child must obey God's law and learn to obey God's law better and better or they are not genuinely saved. We must not teach children that salvation comes to them uh, and can be known by anything except a growing character that obeys the commandments better and better. A genuinely saved person grows in the power to obey God's law. If there isn't any growth in this character that we're talking about, there's every good reason to doubt that child's salvation. And this must be presented to them in the classroom in the mundane, simplistic things again, like you don't get out of your seat without permission, you don't speak without permission, you get your homework done, and all of these other things. And of course, as I said before, the music training in sports uh, is more unforgiving than the weakling uh, parents very often. And that's why these are very good things many times to supplement these ideas with. To me, one of the impressive things about uh, my first visit to your school was that there was no free playtime. It was organized play. And I felt that was very, very important because at that age, two to five, the children are not capable of organized play. Free play means that uh, it's just an opportunity for the teachers to do nothing while the kids run around and uh, hurt each other and get into trouble. You're quite right. The teachers look at the uh, playground time as break time. Uh, however, the students who uh, have been in schools in which they have... Uh, no organized activity, which was nearly all other schools for children this young, uh, the students uh, are delighted with the fact that now they, they, they have a game with rules to play and uh, they're not being bullied, they're not being knocked down, not being pushed around. Uh, they have something to do that has meaning to them and they're getting recognition from the, from the teachers. Uh, but the children are very, very happy, as uh, I'm sure you noticed at our school. Yes. Uh, because the uh, playground time and the classroom time, all of these things are structured, uh, which is another point that I think every educator and every preacher knows instinctively, and that is that the more structure that's in a child's life, the yes. more secure he is, and security mm -hmm. is the key to a child's happiness. Uh, insecurity or not knowing what's going to happen next is what uh, will make them unhappy in a hurry. This is why a divorce tears them apart. Uh, they're not sure about the affection that the mother and father have for each other. They're not sure about what's going to make mother and father angry and what's going to make them happy. They're not sure about what's required of them. 
they come into a world that's extremely frightening uh, to a young child. The world doesn't seem systematic. It seems chaotic. And we as parents and, and we as uh, mature Christians, we teach them to know that the world does have order and the world does have purpose and it all works together for their good, providing they learn God's law and they apply this in their life and they develop the character that all the world becomes their friend, that even the stones in the field will be at league with them if they learn to uh, obey and to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. This is our message, but it's all keyed down to structure. And this produces security. We're secure in our purpose. We're secure in why we're here. We're secure in where we're going and our whole meaning in life. And the more obedient we become, why the happier and more purposeful we become. Uh, the enemy of our souls, however, takes this out of uh, education. And the child uh, is introduced into a frightening world of chaos, and the chaos is added to in the name of compassion, which is really hatred. Uh, because to teach a child uh, that, that the world cannot be conquered uh, uh, by themselves in the help of the Holy Spirit is to be very cruel to them indeed. This is a wonderful world and a wonderful country that we live in, provided you're a, a disciplined person and a person who finds his uh, gift and calling and does it well to the glory of God. Uh, we have the key with our covenant and with the Lord Jesus Christ and with discipline. And uh, this is uh, the basis of a Christian education. And so for that reason, we introduce more and more structure into the lives of our children. Now, let me give you an example. For example, the arch enemy of Christianity, uh, Plato, for example, uh, in his Republic advocated no systematic work or study of any kind until the child was uh, nearly, I think it was 10 or 12 years old. And this is largely believed instinctively by people who hate Christ and are not regenerate. Mm -hmm. They believe that children are happiness when they're doing nothing of meaning. The very opposite is the truth. The child is happiness, happiest whenever he's doing something that has the most meaning and the most purpose and the most structure. That's why the old-fashioned Christian schools were very structured indeed. And the new progressive educators took it all out uh, because they were antichrist in their viewpoint. Now, they were conscious in what they're doing, but God helped some of our reformed Christians who uh, are unconsciously following this progressive model and uh, doing the devil's work all the time, thinking that because they begin the class with prayer and uh, because they smile and hug and talk about God's love and they should be talking about uh, uh, disobedience and the consequences of it as well to balance their presentation, God helped them because they're, they're not helping these children at all. They're setting them up for horrible uh, failure. Something I've, I've noticed in, in recent years, parents are very much against the whole idea of competition. Parents yes. are very much against the idea of, of anything that the child spends too much time on. Parents will come to us as though the child is becoming a perfectionist. The child uh, wants to redo their, their um, homework papers until they're perfect. And I have to tell my child to go to home. And this, this is, this is, I mean, to tell them to go to bed and st stop doing your schoolwork. And uh, as though this is some kind of a problem, and I have to tell them, <laughs> you know, you should appreciate that your child wants to do, achieve excellence. It's a rare commodity. Another problem I often see is, and you've probably seen this too, is parents will come and will say, this child needs to be in third grade. We need to skip this child up to, to, to from second to third grade. It's too easy for them, and we can't expect the teacher to always be giving them special things to do. The child belongs in the third grade. It says, no, no, that will affect him socially for years to come, and I want him to stay in second grade and just give him extra work. We lost a child last year because we were very insistent that he needed to go to third grade and, and the father, who we rarely saw, came to the school and said, sorry, but I don't think you're needing, meeting the needs of my child. He'd been here since kindergarten, and we needed to skip him ahead of grade, but we weren't meeting his needs. The parents wanted him to have, have fun with his social age group, uh, no matter what, whether it was to his detriment or not. So parents are very, very, and of course, many of our parents now, of course, have been raised in the public school and they don't like the competition they don't want their child to work too hard they don't want them to, to work too too hard on any one thing they want them to have a good social life yes and it carries forth with your teacher and also again if I might bring up the homeschooling mothers drill is the key 
particularly in the early uh, years that uh, that we specialize in. Our uh, motto is college can begin at two. And we have uh, youngsters many times will read fluently before their fourth birthday. Uh, and we'll test out, uh, well, we've had three-year-olds that have tested out way up as high as the fifth grade on their standardized test. And the way you get them there is through drill. But drill is very boring to the teachers. And the teachers have been told by their liberal uh, professors, uh, work on the concept, work on understanding, but don't drill. Uh, however, the Bible teaches line upon line, concept upon, here, there, a little bit. In other words, memorization of things that are not comprehensible to the child is very, very important. The concept will come with maturity, but they don't know anything if they can't at least recite it back to you. To memorize the sounds and to, of the alphabet letters and to memorize uh, numbers, facts, and all of these things is... Uh, are very, very important. Again, because of the character development. It's either right or wrong. It's either wrote perfect or it isn't. But as soon as you say wrote, I'm sure there's some liberal educated homeschool parents out there and school teachers that are, are just running around in circles with foam in their mouth right now toward me. But it's not the case. The very opposite is the truth. The Word of God does teach rote learning. And rote learning is very, very important. It's key for developing this character that we're talking about. And the teachers have taken us out of the classroom because nothing is more boring to a teacher than running flashcards over and over again in a contest between this group and that group. Now, we uh, have developed an elaborate system of prizes and rewards and recognition and games, uh, boys against girls, this team against that team, in order to make it less of a, of a, a boring, humdrum thing. But we must not take drill out of the educated life of our children. Uh, this is comparable, again, to the mu music where you have to hit the right note and you have to hit it every time and you have to know it. And there isn't any uh, excuse. You have to know it automatically uh, just as you would uh, with muscle memorization of tying your shoes. Uh, we get that point, then we can work on the conceptual ideas and the application of the idea to esoteric ideas which go beyond that. But unless we built this foundation, and the most important thing, we're, again, we're doing is not building memorization of the multiplication tables, what we're building is the character of saying this is the right answer and that's the wrong answer. That's the main thing. And that's built through drill. And lots and lots and lots of drill. And uh, parents out there of homeschool children, they should have that and they should not uh, give up on it. Uh, and many times you can have uh, students grow other students. Uh, you know, if it drives you crazy, well, I, uh, have the older students drill the younger ones if you have a chance to do it. And work out uh, rewards for them. Uh, while I'm on the subject of rewards, uh, I also find the uh, homeschool parents want to have an honor roll for six weeks or three weeks or something like this. Long-term reward is very ineffectual with children. Short-term reward is very ineffectual. What they do in the next five minutes, reward them for that. Uh, wh whether you get correct on this particular paper, do it for that. Their, their attention span and their character is very weak, so you make short-term goals that they can do and achieve so that they develop the character to do longer and longer goals. So shrink in those things. Uh, the six-week honor roll is one of the dumbest things that educators ever did because a child doesn't have enough character to think six weeks into the future. Uh, that's forever. Or, for example, some preacher preaching to a chapel, kids are going to go to hell if you sin. Well, it's very ineffectual. For example, when my mother said to me, your father's going to give you a paddle whenever you came home, that was not very effectual. Uh, when he was going to come home, well, that was several hours away. That was a lifetime, and, and she might forget, and, uh, and he might. Uh, but that didn't frighten me very much. Well, how about telling a child he's going to go to hell when he dies? Well, when he dies, is a, is <laughs> death is so distant from him, it isn't even funny. Uh, there's no fear in that. Uh, now, the old people, when you preach them, they go to hell whenever he dies. Now, there's, a, there's a, a sermon that's going to have some effectiveness. But with young children, it's much more effective to say you're not going to get that piece of candy in the next five minutes unless you do this, and you're not going to get this reward if you don't get these correct answers. Shorten it up. Make it more meaningful to them. Uh, this, this brings greater results. Well, one of the things... Uh it's very important in my perspective on this view of things, education and so on, is that we have totally lost an awareness of what insanity is. 
the disciplined life is the free life. Amen. The radically undisciplined life is not only unfree, but it is insane. I have had the misfortune over the years to have to uh, take part in dealings with people who are insane. They are totally self-centered. They are incapable of focusing on anything outside of themselves. And they are impatient with any terms that anyone sets down for them. They are, in other words, totally modern. They cannot organize their lives in terms of anything but their purely selfish, egocentric concerns. Well, we have an insane age as a result. We have people doing things without any thinking, without any concern. It's also an age ripe with opportunity for us. Yes. If we just do things like putting structure into our children's lives, getting them to memorize things, having them take up a musical instrument, having them uh, go into sports activities, uh, having them uh, do chores around the house. And, of course, uh, if they can start a family enterprise, I'm speaking to preachers out there, who very often children end up uh, being some of the worst testimony in their church. Uh, if these preachers had a school and got their children to work in meaningful tasks, uh, they probably would de uh, develop this character that we're talking about. But it's so easy to correct. And it all begins with a correct understanding of the gospel. Obedience to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is the evidence of a changed life. Yes. Uh, and there is not a, has not been a born-again experience that doesn't produce this. Uh, we must uh, look upon this not as a, a darkening thing, uh, but as, a, uh, as an opportunity. If, uh, if these people are going to be nutty and these people are going to be insane, and in many respects they are, and they're going to be non-competitive, they're going to they're going to have to go to the Marine Corps and get kicked in the backside by a, a sergeant or something, and learn uh, what discipline's all about. Well, they're going to be years late getting into the fight. Where our people can be ready from the, from the time they hit the ground uh, to succeed in, in business enterprises across our country, if we, uh, as educators, as parents, give them this rote learning, this discipline, this task-oriented uh, approach to life the security that comes from having a structured life. If we can give that to our students, why, opportunities have never been greater. Uh, mm -hmm. Man is, uh, with one eye, is, is king in the land of the blind, and the world's becoming blind, why, more opportunity for us. In the 1950s, a team of sociologists wrote a book, The Lonely Crowd, still ex exceptionally good reading. And their thesis was that what had happened was that a population here in this country that had been inner-directed, that is, governed by their faith and their conscience, and production-oriented, had become consumer-oriented. They were consumers, not producers, and they were not governed by their conscience, but by the crowd, the groupthink aspect. Well, we've seen that in a fearful way. It is continuing to develop to its logical implications so that no one thinks in terms of moral standards and conscience unless they are strong Christians. Just a few nights ago on television, I heard one man who was involved, a young man, in a very brutal murder say when he was asked why he had done it, they were going to kill him, so why not? Well, our time is up. Thank you all for listening, and Mac, God bless you, and continue to prosper you in your work. Thank you for your blessing, sir.